I am starting today by casting my mind back uh, a number of years, I won't tell you how many, uh, to a uh, 16-year-old Johnny who uh, was watch, decided to watch a film. I won't talk about myself in third person, that's pretentious. For me, I was 16, and I decided to watch a film. Uh, when I was uh, younger, it was just before dinner, so it was late afternoon, and I flicked on the TV, and basically, uh, I got a kind of... Um, Got wrapped up in this sort of, it, how do I describe it? It was a mid-80s made-for-television movie. You know, that sort of thing. You're with me on that. Lots of uh, classic moustaches, and it starred a guy called Carl Weathers. Can we have a picture of Carl? Oh, I'd have Carl for you, but he's gone completely. Uh, but Carl Weathers, uh, known, um, Phil probably knows some of his parts in Rocky and Predator and things like that. I know that that's... Up your street. Um, but generally, Carl Weathers is in late afternoon, mid-80s TV movies, okay? This is the guy, okay? And uh, basically, just to say, it was hardly Oscar-winning fare. That's my point here, I suppose. But this is the story, and the story goes like this. There are two uh, convicts, and they escape. But in their escape, basically, they are still handcuffed together for the rest of the film. And uh, it kind of uh, goes as you would expect. They, they keep one step ahead of the law for the whole sort of time as it's going along. And uh, uh, go through different adventures and near scrapes and, and their, de- char- their de- um, characters develop and their relationship together develops. And it gets to this final scene, basically, where um, they are at the train station. And the train is the symbol of freedom. The train will get them to freedom. Okay? If they can get on that train, they're okay. Their family waiting for them, their friends, all of that sort of stuff. Okay? Now you can imagine, I'm sure you've, you can... You're with me here. Like, they're there, going towards the station. The train's just pulling off. Okay, you with me? Understand the picture? The, the lawmen are behind on their horses, closing in. It's the grand denouement of the film. Okay, and they're running along, handcuffed together still. And you know in these films, the, the carriages are these the, the empty carriages with these big doors. And that one guy, I think it's Carl Weathers, he jumps onto the train, and he makes it. He gets onto the train. He's there on the carriage. His friend running on. The train's obviously not going that fast. That would be very tricky. Uh, but he's running along, still handcuffed to the train. All it takes is one jump, one swing, and freedom is theirs. You've got the horses closing in from behind. The train is building up speed. He gets ready for the jump. You ready? He stumbles and falls. Cole Weathers tumbles from the train, obviously still handcuffed to his friend. The horses appear. They're, they're just there they're before him. They, they take the two convicts. They take them back to prison. And the credits roll. I remember as a 16-year-old boy, just before tea, bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I am not ashamed to say it is the most emotionally affected I've ever been in a film. I don't know why. It was probably hormones and things, teenage stuff going on. But I, half a box of Kleenex was destroyed by this film. Because, you know, I somehow uh, got to really like these characters. I really felt for them. I wanted to succeed. But they completely failed and wiped out all of their achievements that they'd done for the entire rest of the film. And you know what? I guess that's what good stories do, don't they? Using good in slightly adverted commas here. Um, a good story will take us along, it will wrap us up in the fate of the characters, and if things go wrong, the story emotionally affects us. And that's true even if it's a late afternoon, mid-80s TV movie starring Carl Weathers. Now, in the, we're, you'll be glad to hear, if you're new with us today, you'll be glad to hear we're not going through uh, Carl Weathers' filmography today, just so you know, just be on safe ground. We're going through a different story, and it's the story of the Bible, it's the big story, okay, the Bible from start to finish. 
Uh, we, rather than what we'd normally do, I guess, in the talks, we'd look quite close in on verses from the Bible. Uh, we're taking a big, expansive picture. You want to know God's re- uh, redemptive plan through the whole of history. So in about 20 sermons, we're going to cover the whole lot. And we're about, well, I don't know, eight or nine weeks in, seven or eight. Some, we're about there today. But what you've got to know today is we're about to have our Carl Weathers moment today in the story. Things are going to go horribly wrong in our story today. All of the efforts, all of the adventures, all of the hard-fought victories of the last five or six weeks of sermons are about to be completely wiped out and apparently come to nothing. We're in the realm here of utter tragedy. Now, it's got to be said at this point in the story um, that the big story as a whole is a story of hope. We need to understand that. Uh, last week we did the naughty thing, didn't we? We flipped to the last page of the story and we saw this. At the end of this story, where it's all heading, is that good triumphs, evil's defeated, humanity is rescued, heaven on earth is fully restored. And it's worth noting that at this point because while that happens on the final page, we're not going to see a whole lot of that today. In this part of the story, things move in precisely the opposite direction. And it's all the more poignant, I think, considering where we were last week. Because if you were with us last week, you'll remember that's far from what we were talking about. Last week, we were looking at the whole uh, story of Solomon, Solomon's kingdom in Israel. And we saw this high point in Israel's history, this near state of heaven on earth. All that had gone before had culminated in this wonderful place uh, with, with the people of Israel uh, receiving the, the promises that they had. Heaven on earth, it seemed, at the end of last week, was within touching distance. It was like, Carl Weathers is on the train. He's just there. They're ready to go. They're almost at freedom. But you've got to get ready for the stumble today. Because within 300 years from that point, the people of Israel are no more, completely gone from the promised land. Israel under Solomon looked like it was a step away from heaven, but actually it was only a couple of steps away from oblivion. It's part of the story, I want to just, I've said it a few times, but it's a tragedy. And it's a part of the story that's meant to pack an emotional punch for us. It's not a heartwarming tale And it's not even just a little bit of a tearjerker. This is full-on sobs, this story here. So what I want to do today is two things. I simply, and the first one's the main thing, I simply want to retell the story to you. I I want you to understand the big picture of this story. Because often I think we get caught in little bits of this story, and there's some great bits in it, some great people in it as well. But when you step back and see the whole thing, it can hit you. I want us to engage emotionally with this story, not just theologically. Because I think that's why God's given us a story not just a list of things. And after I've done that, right at the end, I just want to ask one question of this story, and I want to ask this question, why on earth would God put this in the Bible? Why? Why does he put us through this? And you might think the song we just sung, Your Love is Amazing. We sung it with gusto. It's a great way to start the meeting. Love it. You might think we're going through this. Your love is amazing? What's, What's God's love got to do with this? You know what? Wait till the end. I want to end. We're going to end there. And I'll show you, this story is all about God's love. Strange as that may seem, hold on, because that's where we're going to end up, okay? So let's remember where we've come from in the story. Let's wrap ourselves up in it again, okay? Beginning of the story, the big story. God makes people. People rebel against him. Eden is lost. God's good purposes for mankind seem to be completely shattered. But God is determined to fix things. See that at the start. And so what does he do? He chooses one guy, chooses Abraham, 
from whom he plans to rescue the entire human race. And uh, remember, he promised him a load of things. Uh, one of the key promises from you, Abraham, and your descendants, every nation on the world will be blessed. That's what he says to Abraham. And his plan, it's very clear, is not just for one family among lots of families. It's not even for just one nation among lots of nations. They can all go to hell. You guys will be fine. Now, that's not God's plan. He's using the small to influence and affect the big to restore the whole of the world. That's his plan. And so he makes clear how he'll do it. He says he'll make them a great nation. He says he'll give them a home. He says he'll bless them. And actually, they move towards these fulfillment of these promises, as we've seen, slowly, kind of stuttering progress, and actually pretty unfaithfully, actually. However, in the whole of that time, God is not unfaithful. God is massively faithful to his people. And eventually, under Solomon, when we got to last week, we saw uh, God's plan come into some sort of focus. You got last week, Israel is this great nation, as promised. They've got the land, as promised. And they've got such blessing on them at that point, as we looked at last week, that the nations around them start coming to them and receiving the blessing, like Abraham, uh, like Abraham had been told. So you've got the Queen of Sheba, if you remember rightly, comes this kind of uh, local, uh, powerful dignitary. I've heard a bit about Israel. I'm going to come and see what's going on. She comes in. She talks to Solomon. She sees the land. What's her response? Her response is, praise be to the Lord your God. And we can finally, I think, see how the plan could play out. At last, it's coming into some sort of focus. Israel being blessed means others notice and they want to share the blessing. So it looks like what's happening is they start coming in, want to follow the God of Israel. And you can see how this could go. It spreads. It spreads and spreads and spreads until actually all nations have been blessed. Actually, the, uh, heaven on earth has been restored. God's gathered not just a nation but the whole world. You can start seeing it's exciting in that sort of sense. And it seems so close. Everything's moving along really nicely. Israel just needs to stay faithful and heaven, it looks like, is truly going to be restored on planet earth and the fall completely undone. And then this happens. 1 Kings 11, 1 to 9. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites and Edomites... Sidonians and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Melech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And this is exactly what happens. Solomon dies, and on his death, he hands over his kingdom to his son called Rehoboam. Now, at this point, you've got to understand a little bit of how things worked at that point. Israel, under David and Solomon, uh, was a, a united nation, but it had 12 tribes in it, all descendants of Abraham, all together, but with a sense of distinct identity, okay? A tiny bit like American states, but you could definitely push that far too far, okay? And there were 12 of those, those tribes. And basically, under David and Solomon, they'd all been together, and they'd all together for a purpose. 
However, there'd been some wrinkles that had developed between Solomon's relationship with the northern tribes. Solomon and David ruled from Jerusalem, which is in the south, in Judah. Okay, And these ten other tribes want to know, wait, now Solomon's handed over, have we still got a stake in this whole Israel thing? So what they do, the ten northern tribes send delegates down to see uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Basically say, look, have we still got a place in this kingdom? How's this going to work for us here? And Rehoboam does something incredibly foolish. He decides this would be an excellent opportunity to flex his muscles. So he does, it's like you've got these ten delegates there and he's just like, come on, I'll show you how hard I am. Uh, you don't, don't ask me questions, just bow to my authority. It's that sort of thing. And uh, it all kind of horribly backfires for him, to be honest. Um, and this is what happens, uh, 1 Kings 12, verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. Full stop. It's all a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? There's Rehoboam like this, got his shirt off, oiled, I'm so strong. And they're like, Pfft. so all the Israelites went home. And from that point, this kingdom is split in two. You've got the northern kingdom, uh, which is called Israel, and you've got the southern kingdom called Judah, but they're two distinct countries, okay? It's all gone wrong for what the plan. Rehoboam didn't flex his muscles, he just drove everyone off. Now, this is a big problem, because you see Solomon building on David's godliness and wisdom and held the people together and made them into this kind of mighty political force in the area. The other neighbours looking on thought, you know what, we're not going to take those guys. We're not going to be able to deal with them. They're too strong. In fact, it's probably better that we kind of side with them to a degree. However, in the dog-eat-dog world of ancient Middle Eastern politics, the minute they're split into two weaker powers... It's as if their fate is almost sealed. Because you can always see the, 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 the Ammonites and the Aramaeans and all these around them, just at this point, just rubbing their hands together and going, great, we couldn't take Israel as a whole. Tell you what, we can take each of these two. And basically, this is a real disaster. And you've got to notice, it's happening almost before the gold paints had time to dry on Solomon's city walls. And it gets worse very, very quickly. So let's go to the northern kingdom first. Northern Kingdom, they go back to the north and they, they uh, follow a guy called Jeroboam. Bit confusing, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north. But Jeroboam leads the ten uh, northern tribes and he has a problem. The problem goes like this. All of Israel's religious culture focuses on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in Judah, which is in the south. So what are they going to do? He can't have his people just going every, uh, every Sabbath down to Jerusalem or every festival, because otherwise it's not going to work, really. So what's he going to do? Is he going to seek God and say, look, this is what's happened. It's bad. But God, what should we do? No. He decides that's not the way ahead in the whole thing. Let's just make it up. So he just makes up a kind of altered form of religion. We'll have some altars here. We'll have a bit of worship here. You guys, you want to be a priest? Want to be a priest? Yeah, cool. You can be a priest. Come and be a priest. Absolutely fine. He makes it up. But he's not content to stop there either. 1 Kings 12, 28 to 29. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Remind you of anything? Yeah, we've seen this before, haven't we? We've seen golden calves before. And if I remember rightly, God didn't take too kindly to the golden calf before. Golden calf number one under Aaron, okay, the response of God was brutal to that. 
if you know the story, what happened, God said to Moses, this is an on, gather the priests, take out your swords and attack. I want you to say capital punishment on anyone who's worshipping these calves. If I remember as well, he threw in a plague for good measure at the end. If we look at God's track record when it comes to golden calves, at this point of the story, I think we're hiding behind our pillows waiting for something slightly violent to happen. But you know what? In the story of Jeroboam and the golden calves, a very strange thing happens. How does God punish his people for their idolatry under Jeroboam? Do you know what he does? Absolutely nothing. He does nothing. There's no plagues. There's no bloodshed. There's no return to the wilderness. He just lets them continue as they please. But you know what? You might kind of say, oh, well, that's, uh, that's nice. God's obviously embraced a slightly new peaceful philosophy, a bit of live and let live, never hurt anyone. Um, being a bit nicer, it's a good thing as well. Is that what's going on here? Uh, I wish it was. That would, be, that would be lovely to say, but that's not what's going on here at all. Actually, God's inaction is a far more chilling response and has much more serious consequences than the direct action that I guess many of us would have more of a problem with. Because what's God doing here? Essentially, what he's doing is this. He's holding up his hands and saying, you know what, guys? Enough is enough. I've tried many, many times to cut this cancer out from you. I've tried to purge you of this, this sickness that would destroy you. But my patience isn't going to last forever. And basically what happens is the people are left to discover in real time why God treated sin as so dangerous. Because by doing nothing, all he is doing is he's handing over his people to their own foolishness and to the bloodthirsty nations that surround them. And the results are terrible, absolutely awful. So from this point in the northern kingdom, the 10 out of the 12 tribes, they go from one bad king to another. Very little let up in this sort of uh, sense. The people sink into ever further degrees of wickedness and depravity. And from the outside, their land is steadily picked off uh, by, um, by the Aramaeans, by the Egyptians. Until only 200 years later, the king of Assyria uh, attacks. He defeats the northern tribes completely. He imprisons their kings. He exiles all of the people. And the 10 of the 12 tribes are no more. Just want, want to be clear on this. They never reappear, these guys. They are removed completely from the story. Ten twelfths of God's people eliminated with much, much pain and suffering in that. That's what happens when we see what sin does. When left to our sin, no interaction, that's what happens. I suppose you could say, that's bad, but it's not the end of the world. It's ten out of twelve. You've got two left, haven't you? Benjamin and Judah, the Kingdom of Judah in the south. Now that might sound a little bit kind of trite and a bit of a pat on the head, which you don't need. But actually, there's some sense in that. Because you see, Judah at the bottom was the big tribe. That's the biggie that you've got. It's the biggest tribe numerically uh, in Israel. But also, it's the tribe that owns God's promises uh, most as well. It's the tribe of David. It's where Jerusalem is, where the temple is, all that stuff. And God had said to uh, David in 2 Samuel 7, he said this to him. He said, your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, what he meant there by your house is Judah, the people of Judah, okay? So therefore, that's, all, that's fine. Judah's still standing. You've got the temple still. You've got Jerusalem still. Whew, everything's going to be okay. God's promises still stand. Don't worry. You were panicking. Everything's right. Judah's still there. 
The problem with that is, though, let's rewind back to just after Solomon again. Northern tribe, we see how that pans out. Let's go back to the beginning. Jeroboam was in the north, the other Boam, Rehoboam's in the south. Well, therefore, he must turn out good, mustn't he? No, far from it. Rehoboam's as bad as Jeroboam. And actually, so bad that in only the fifth year after Solomon dies, Egypt attacks, ransacks, uh, well, ransacks some of, of Judah, and goes into the temple and steals all of the treasures of the temple. Five years. So if you were here last week, you know I made a big deal of the temple. The temple was a big deal. They spent years, decades, planning this temple. They got the best artists in the whole world to come and adorn it, do this, have this here, have this here. Five years, the whole thing's gone. The inside of it's stolen. Now, they, they patch it up. The Egyptians go. They replace the gold for bronze, it says. But you know what? It's not quite the same, is it really? That's within five years. However, Judah does recover, and it's got to be said that they do do better than Israel on the whole. And over the next decades, some great righteous men of God come and lead Judah every now and again. And you see these periods of time where Judah, as a nation, turns back to God in these astonishing ways. Some stories that we would know and we would love uh, in this sort of part of, the, part of the Bible. That's got to be said. However, while that's said on one side, it's also undeniable from this point that Judah also just goes into steady decline. Both first is a political power, but secondly, and more importantly, slowly turning further and further away from God. And actually, the baddies start to trump the goodies. So, 100 years after this, after a succession of bad kings like Rehoboam, a guy called Joash comes to the throne. Joash loves God. He, uh, he restores the temple to how it should be. He reinstitutes temple worship. The people start going with him. And you think, brilliant, back to Solomon. Maybe we can get back on that sort of thing again. Only problem is, Joash has a bit of a uh, kind of moment halfway through his reign goes completely off the rails, starts worshipping foreign gods and killing all his friends. Problem. Things are back to how they were before. hundred years later, Hezekiah comes along. Hezekiah's a good guy. And he sees the problems they're in again, the trough Judah's got themselves in. He sees that the temple must be restored. He reinstitutes the Passover celebration that they've stopped doing entirely. The people come to him. They say, yes, Hezekiah, you're right. We're going to follow God forever. We're back on track. And you really think, brilliant, at last they've seen it again. It's taken a while, but we're back with Solomon. Let's go. Then he hands over his kingdom to Manasseh, his son. Manasseh is the most evil of all the kings of Judah and Israel. And within a matter of weeks, undoes all his dad's good work. He puts idols in the temple itself. And if that doesn't show you anything, if you don't think about idols, who cares? He burns his own children to death in worship of a foreign deity. I mean, this guy's shocking. 20 years later, Josiah comes along. Josh, you're getting the story, mate. Joss, you'll be glad to hear, is a goodie, he's a good bloke. And uh, that would have been embarrassing otherwise, wouldn't it? <laughs> Josiah comes to the throne, and Josiah is a good guy. And he thinks, we've got to fix this, we've got to fix the problems Manasseh's caused in all of these years. And again, he does the same. He's, he's righteous, the people repent, the temple's restored, the law's rediscovered, the people recommit themselves to God. But you know what? I'm sure you're getting the idea of where this is heading and where this is going, because by this point, God makes it very, very clear Okay, Josiah, that's fine. But you know what? I've already decided what's happening here. 
The fate is already sealed. And the best Josiah can win for the people of Judah is a brief respite from oblivion. 2 Kings 23 to 26, 26 to 27. Nevertheless, this is comparing it to Josiah's great works he'd done. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah because of all of that Manasseh had done to arouse his anger. So the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel, and I will reject Jerusalem, the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, my name shall be there. And so within 20 years, King of Babylon, uh, brief siege of Jerusalem, he enters Jerusalem, and this happens as the last part of this part of the story. On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had deserted to the king of Babylon. Do you remember those promises God made to Abraham? Remember them? Remember those ones to David as well? Forever, forever. Remember last week, the near state of heaven on earth under Solomon. Well, I tell you what, as all of God's people are removed from the promised land, I'd argue it seems they've all completely disappeared. They're gone. Heaven seemed within touching distance last week. Now it looks like God's people are completely finished. And so here's the question. I think it's the question we've got to ask here. Now you might have been asking already, why on earth? Why on earth is this in the story? Why does God put us through this in what's supposed to be the Holy Bible? Why does God allow this to happen? I think there's only one reason that we need to look at to finish today. And that reason is this, that we've got to understand the seriousness of sin. We've got to understand it. You see, I think for me, what I would do naturally is this. I would end this part of the story with Solomon. I would have finished it there if I was God. And it would go something like this then, the story. Yeah, okay, we messed up a little bit. Okay, uh, so probably we need God's help to get us out of this fix that we've caused through our problems. But if he gives us some rules to follow and helps us out with a couple of miracles along the way, you know what? I reckon everything's going to be fine. I reckon that'll fix it. We'll go to a utopia. There's a kind of hand in hand, us and God, we've done it together sort of thing. And that's how most religions in the world work, actually. The idea is to fix the problems of humanity, we need a guide to help us achieve salvation ourselves. Okay, That's religion in a bottle, if you want to put it like that. That's the religious approach to life. To fix the problems of humanity, we need a guide to help us achieve salvation ourselves. Basically, God helps us see our error. He shows us how to live differently. And he puts the keys to salvation in our hands. And so at the end of the day, we can walk up to whatever wonderful thing there is after our death and we can turn the key in the lock and open the door and go in. And so we'll be there, paradise, heaven, whatever you want to call it. And uh, people say, how did you get here? You'll say, well, I'll tell you what, pat on the back for God. He really helped me out. But basically I'm here because I did a pretty decent job. I followed his instructions. I did what needed to be done. You know, what? I'm pretty pleased with myself. 
I got myself out of the mess of my sin. But you know what? That's a complete misunderstanding of the situation that this big story has been telling us from the very, very start. Because the sin that was born in the Garden of Eden was not just a black mark against humanity. No, it was a poison that has corrupted us entirely. It's it's a cancer that's twisted the very core of our being. And so the story of the kings teaches us in inglorious technicolor three things about sin that we have to take seriously and we will forget all the time. One, sin is not just in the bad people. That's what we see in this story. Solomon is this great king. He's met with God, blessed with wisdom from God. He's uh, got this task, this great task, to lead God's people away from sin, to lead them into righteousness. And he's doing great for most of his life. He's doing really well. But he stumbles across a problem. And the problem's this. I'm leading them away from sin, but what about the sin in my heart? He's tripped up by his own sin. So what starts as godly wisdom soon becomes human wisdom. You know, if I marry a few of the wise, alliances will develop, will keep peace in the land, etc., etc. Small matter of Deuteronomy 17, 17, the king should not marry lots of wives. Didn't seem to bother him. No, no, it's, it's godly wisdom, but you know, he won't mind. Human wisdom. Human wisdom very quickly turns to fully-fledged uh, uh, turning away from God himself. Suddenly he's worshipping the foreign gods. And this is then replayed again and again and again in the stories of the kings as good king after good king is swallowed up by their own foolishness or by their inability to control their kids. That's what happens in in these stories. How can you deal with the sin in others when it's just there in your own heart? Sin is not just in the bad people. It's in the very, very best of us. If you put yourself in the, the bottom of that pile, I'm one of the bad people. I know, don't tell me anymore. It's true of you. You probably know that. If actually you think, but I'm one of the best of us, sin's in you too, just like it was in Solomon. Sin's not just in, in, sin is uh, not just in the bad people. Secondly, sin overshadows the good in us. Left to our own devices, evil overcomes good. Yeah, there are moments, I've mentioned them in passing, of great heroism and righteousness among these stories. You might be annoyed with me that I haven't mentioned Elijah or Elisha or gone more into Hezekiah or even Asa or other kings that came and did a pretty decent job along the way. But in this part of the story, we've got to understand that those guys, those favorite stories of ours, are completely swallowed up by the much more pervasive presence of sin. Early years Joash is overshadowed by later year Joash. Hezekiah's righteousness is overshadowed and almost completely crossed out by Manasseh's evil. Josiah's godliness is forgotten completely within years as his successors lead the people of God into oblivion. You know what? Wherever we're from today, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you kind of would roughly agree with me on this or not, you know what? All of us, we'd love to think of the world as a good place where bad things happen. And we'd love to think of human beings and people and us as basically good who make the odd mistake. But the story of the kings of Israel makes it abundantly clear that is all wrong as a view of humanity. Sin is not just a scratch. It's not just a flesh wound. It's a festering sore that has eaten us up completely. 
Sin overshadows the good in us. And thirdly, and finally, sin is very, very ugly. It's very ugly. We need moments like this to be able to reflect on this. Today is a Remembrance Sunday, as you may be aware. It's quite divisive Remembrance Sunday among some people. I say, well, should we focus on war too much? It's kind of assuming that we support war. Some wars aren't for particularly good reasons. Other people say, no, no, we've got to remember the people that died. You know, they gave our lives. We're better off. We're not ruled by a kind of Third Reich. I mean, that's important. Actually, as Christians, what do we remember on Remembrance Sunday? What do we remember when we think back to the war? You know what? I, re- I remember people who died, actually, for me. I, I'm really happy for that. I'm thankful that those people gave their lives in those conflicts, particularly First and Second World Wars. Really thankful. This is what I remember most, isn't it? I look back on a time of history that shouldn't have existed. It's awful. My son said to me, I said, what's Remembrance Sunday about? He goes, when we celebrate the First World War, Dad. Like, no, no, that's not it at all. I'm not having to go at my son. He's six, as you know. But it's not like we're nostalgically looking at this. No, we're looking at an awful thing, terrible things that have happened. The world shouldn't have wars. What are wars? When we look at the war, what do we see? What we see is this, the ugliness of sin. We don't see some politicians made some blunders. What we see is a magnification on the sin in every one of our hearts. And we know when we watch the documentary, and we know when we study the history, we know when we see the black and white pictures, it is incredibly ugly. We often ask, does it matter if I sin? Does it matter if I disobey God? I don't really know why this, this particular action is on his naughty list anyway. It's not going to matter. At the same time, we, we look back at, at the Old Testament and these actions in the Old Testament that have been bubbling along under the surface for the whole story. I'm pretty sure everyone's thought of this question as we've gone along is, what, God did that? Flooded the entire world? Told the Israelites to do that? I mean, how on earth can a loving God, who we've already said, his love is amazing, do things like this? What kind of psycho is this guy? And people would talk in that language. And to be honest, I can understand that. But I think, actually, when we look at the story of the kings, as I alluded to earlier, we start to see what's going on here. We start to see the problem. Because, actually, the worst thing God can do is to let us alone with our sin. He purges it. He tries to stop it. It's like this this outbreak of this contagious virus that he knows is going to eat everyone up. And you see in the Old Testament, just come, no, we can't have it. I don't want to do this, but it's got to be stopped. And then eventually he says, no. You've got to see what this is like. And we see one and two kings. That's what we see. So you see a king disobeying a small rule in the Mosaic law. Don't marry lots of wives from those countries. He looks at David. David did that. He'd probably be fine. Where does that small sin end up? Ends up in Manasseh burning his kids in a fire. It's ugly. You start over here with a few little altars on hills around Israel. You think, oh, well, you know, looks pretty, pretty innocent to me. Where do you end up? You end up with Jerusalem on fire, all of God's people ransacked, enslaved, and deported. That's where it ends up. You know, it's a very valid question to ask, how can a God of love punish people so severely in the Old Testament? You shouldn't feel guilty for that question. If you've got more on it, you need to ask those questions. It's important. But when we see what happens when he leaves us to the natural consequences of our sin in a world overrun by sin, I think we start to see why he had to take such measures as a least bad option. But even with that said, 
You could ask him again, it'd be a valid question. But why wallow in it this morning? Why, why wallow in this bad stuff? Can't we just sing about God's love and forget it? Well, to finally answer that question, at last, let's finish where I said, I promised you ages ago we go here, with the hope that's after this. Because actually, although this chapter seems like it's going to be the last, this isn't the end for God's people. We haven't finished this series. The story's not over. And it's not the end for his promises either. Actually, in a strange way, this passage is just another part of the plan. Now, it's a terrible part of the plan, but it's a necessary part of the plan. Because you see, 600 years after the sacking of Jerusalem, a man lived in Israel. And this man uh, was different from any other character in the story so far, and any other character that's still to come in the story. He was partly like a priest, a prophet like Moses, partly like a king like David. In another way, he was just a wandering street preacher. But what was different about him was that this guy had the final answer to the problem of the fall. He was the one who actually could restore heaven on earth. Not a shadow of it, but actually the real deal. And he could do it because of one thing. And that one thing was he didn't have the sickness. Sin wasn't in him. He could deal with others' sin because he didn't have to deal with his own sin tripping him up. And this man explained why he'd been sent in these terms, exactly these terms. Luke 5, 31. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came with the cure for the sickness of sin. But God knew that actually you only accept a cure if two things happen. First, you've got to recognize you're ill. That's the first thing. Secondly, you've got to recognize your illness is serious enough for you to require treatment. I think as we look at passages like this, what we should do is we should see, look, this is what sin is. It's really serious. And then look back at ourselves and realize, oh no, and it's in me. I've got the problem. And what's the result? Do we just wallow and feel upset and maybe say a few Hail Marys or something like that? What do we do? This is what we do. We, in desperation, turn to the cure. Because the great news here is the story doesn't end here. In a while, the cure is going to enter. He's going to come center stage. And what we need to do here, as the people of Israel are supposed to do at this point, exile from the land, well away from the promises, what's the only thing they can do? Well, you know what? We can't fix our sin, not even with God's help. Please, if there's anything out there to help me, please, can I have it? And then Jesus comes and says, look, if you're sick, I can heal you. If, if you're not a Christian here today, I'd plead with you today. Probably not used to being pleaded with. Don't let the tragedy of the kings of Israel play out in your life. Recognize your sickness and cry out for a cure. Not because you're more sick than me or you're worse than me and us Christians, we're great. No, we're all in the same boat here. So some of us have taken the medicine and others haven't. If you understand the extent of the problem, I think you'll probably see as well pretty soon that if the problem is as bad as the big story says, there is actually only one doctor who can fix it. Jesus He's the only one who offers a solution to a problem this serious. Practically, you might say, what does that mean? Well, you might describe yourself as on a spiritual journey or a spiritual search. I think that language can be really helpful, you know. 
um, you keep ask, I'd say, please keep going. Keep asking your questions. Keep finding out about things. You know, keep having a look. Keep getting prayed for. Keep kind of praying, God, are you out there? Are you out there? Where are you? Can I read the Bible? What can I do? Keep spiritually searching. But don't spiritually search like someone who's got a cold looking for a bit of mild relief. Keep spiritually searching like someone who's been diagnosed with a terminal illness who's been told, you know what? There might just be a cure out there somewhere. Search with urgency. I'll say to you, there is a cure. His name is Jesus, and he can fix it, and then some. If you're a Christian here, I want to challenge you. I want to, again, put it back on your agenda. Don't ever fall for the trick that it probably doesn't matter if you indulge sin in your life. It's a deadly trick, and it's awful. Sin is a cancer. It turned Solomon's paradise into a city in flames. If you're a Christian, what that means is you've let Jesus start cutting out that cancer. Whatever you do, don't let it take root again. Steer clear from it, run from it with the help of the Holy Spirit. But we don't end looking at our sin here. That's not the point of 1 and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We end looking at the cure. I'd encourage you more than anything, press into Jesus. Your relationship with Jesus is not this kind of thing you have on the side of your life that's kind of, well, you know, it's something I carry along. I also like this and I do this and I'm also a football fan too. Those things are all together. No, no, what do we do with Jesus? We press into Jesus because Jesus doesn't just offer us forgiveness from the penalty of sin. As we press into him and center our lives more and more on him, he offers us more and more freedom from sin's awful control over our lives. He breaks the habits. He breaks the tempers. He breaks the addictions and the self-destruction. And it might not happen overnight and it might not happen in a week, but you know what? If you press into Jesus... He's got the cure and he can administer it more and more really in your life now. You can be free from this cancer. Not just you get a ticket to heaven. Please, I'd ask you, press into Jesus. His love is amazing. His love is amazing. It's so amazing he'd save us from the awful sickness of sin. 